WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, to one and to all. Your friend Ben Rabinovitz here on behalf of Tony LaGreca and the late, great Mr. David Oreck. Folks, you may have uh, heard this week, of course, that uh, David Oreck passed away last week comfortably at home. And as Tony said to me, peacefully cuddling with his dog in his bed. And that is the best possible way I could ever hope and or wonder for any of us to go. So tonight we're going to have a very special re-airing of the episode back in 2022 when we had David Oreck live from his home. Tony had gone down to visit him and uh, we had a great opportunity to be able to talk with him and share into the wealth of knowledge that is and was and will always be his legend. Join us right now as we go into that episode to remember a great veteran, a wonderful man. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Courage to Hope and a very special honor to David Oreck. Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. In this Memorial Day, I have a very special guest, uh, special in many reasons, for many reasons. One is he was my boss for 40 years, and I owe a great deal of gratitude to him. And this would be David Oreck, the one you guys know mostly by his vacuum cleaner company. So we're here in Mississippi, popular Mississippi, where it is about the same, 95 degrees. It's a beautiful place, and I'm in David's office. Wow. And David Ork, welcome to Courage to Hope. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be with you and again, Tony. Many years that we've been to, together, actually. And uh, so it's a pleasure being here with you. It's a long time, since 1978. Yeah, that is a long time. And uh, in the meantime, as you mentioned, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be 99 in about two months. No, sir. Uh, barring the unforeseen. And uh, it's kind of remarkable, but if if I forget a few things, I hope you'll understand. Yes. Oh, yeah. We're we're gonna we're gonna give you lots of mulligans if necessary. Don't worry about it. No worries so, at all on that. We're just absolutely honored to have you on WMEX right now, Mr. Oregon. I gotta tell you, uh, I remember the commercials. I remember the bowling ball. I remember all of it. So you are well ingrained in my memory, and I think I can speak for a lot of our listeners, all of our memories for all time. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. And uh, it's been a lot of experience I've had, and, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Getting old is not for sissies, by the way. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I can be around still. And uh, David's pr- proud to say that he's 
never needed us never went in the hospital a single day other than to get cataracts removed other than that he is a hundred percent surgery free wow which is amazing because i am way ahead of him already and i'm only 74 so um <laughs> you know because it's memorial day i was looking to find a a good world war ii veteran because this is i always look at memorial day for world war ii even though it goes back to the to the civil war Mm-hmm. But um, in my lifetime, World War II was the biggest, the big one. It wasn't, you know, as I was, I was being born right after. Um, so we have fewer and fewer World War II veterans. And that's why and David did the Pacific Front. But I'd like to ask him a few things. He grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, apparently, I understand his father uh, and mother lived in Manitoba, and they moved to Duluth because they wanted to get warm. It was too cold up there in Manitoba. And, um, it's cold in Minnesota. That's yeah. correct. And, um, and David had this love for, for airplanes. So what was your first experience well, that really turned you uh, on to the airplanes? I've always loved airplanes for some reason or other. When I was just a young kid, I mean, I'd say about uh, maybe 10 years old, my dad, who was not a, was not a pilot, but... Uh, I told him I would like to take a ride in an airplane. So at that time, again in Duluth, it was cold in the winter, and this was winter. And he took me for a ride in a, a, a tri-motor Ford uh, airplane flying off of Lake Superior, uh, which was solid ice in the winter. And we used the, the uh, skis around the airplane. So my first ride in an airplane, was in a seaplane, on skis, because it was a frozen lake, and uh, I, I never stopped enjoying my love of airplanes. That's that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yes, and that's, you know, that's what happens when you're very young, certain things become very impressionable. So, David, now, when you were about 16, Great Britain had entered the war with Germany, and you heard about a, a thing called the Lend-Lease Program. Can you explain what that is? Uh, yeah, uh, they, um, I was uh, interested. I was, of course, very young. Uh, but in my teens, I don't remember exactly what year, but uh, before we entered the war, uh, we, were, we had a program called Lend-Lease, in which we were lending, presumably, airplanes and other equipment to Britain, who was at war with Germany. And um, they couldn't use uh, uh, military personnel to fly those airplanes and so on, because that would be an active engagement in the war. And we were not at war, but we were helping or trying to help at least uh, Britain. And and they were at war. And uh, so I ended a... uh, a, a private program at that time, having not to do with the U.S. government, but I wanted to get a license uh, so I could get into that program. And I did graduate from this flight school uh, before World War II, and I was preparing to, to get into the program of ferrying airplanes to Europe. Well, as it turns out, at about that time uh, was when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and that set us to war with Japan, and Japan and Germany were allies, 
and there and then uh, Germany declared war on us. Uh, that was the excuse that they needed. So uh, that's how we got how we got into the war and how I I was a little bit ahead of my time. Um, but uh, anyway, shortly thereafter, and I can't remember exactly the timing, but uh, I uh, the program was abandoned by the government because it was no longer necessary. And I uh, uh, enlisted in the Army Air Force. Well, I guess we'll just have to remind everybody we're talking 82 years ago. Yeah. So that's longer than most people are alive. So we're talking 82 years ago. So were you a trained pilot when you went into the Army Air Corps? I was. I had a pilot's license before I went in. And uh, it was a, a very preliminary training and so on. But I, I never, I never got to use it in that particular program because shortly after that is, is when uh, uh, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and uh, Germany then, or that is to say, uh, um, Britain, correction, Germany then declared war on us. Uh, they had been looking for an excuse, and this gave it to them that the fact that we bombed their allied Pearl Harbor after they attacked us. So did you enlist right away? Uh, I don't think it was right away. It was uh, it was in that period. I, I, I don't recall the exact timing of it, but it was a, approximately the same time. Uh, so, uh, so you went, they, they shipped, when you did enlist, they sent you off to the, Army Air Corps, like boot camp for um, training. Well, yes, they had a training program, and uh, I got into that, and uh, and of course that was pretty prolonged. And after I got into that, um, and as time went along, why uh, it, it appeared as though the, the fastest way for me to get into active uh, engagement uh, was to to seek out the navigation program, uh, which I did. Uh, and so uh, ultimately I became a navigator and so on, and uh, uh, was then involved in the, in the Air Corps. So in the Air Corps as a navigator, what style planes were you flying? Well, we, we trained in the B-17s and B-24s, but ultimately, uh, what I got into, and which was quite new at that time, was the B-29. The B I remember I was over in, Bo back in, uh, I was in Baton Rouge, not Baton Rouge, Boca Raton. I was in Boca Raton in a training program, and and uh, on the, we were flying the B-17s and B-24s, and uh, we were getting ready for an early morning training mission, and I was taxing out, and uh this enormous airplane flew in and landed. It was the first B-29 I had ever seen. In fact, that was true for most people at that time. And so uh, one thing led to the other, and, and I, then I got involved in the B-29 program. Quick, quick question. The B-29 I... was... Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say, quick question. When you first laid eyes on that B-29, was it love at first sight, or was it one of those jaw-dropping moments for you and the boys? Well, uh, it was a jaw-dropping moment, to be frank about it. 
And of course, at that particular moment, we didn't know that some of us would be in that airplane or one like it. And so uh, it was exciting because it was unusual. It was much bigger than a B-24 or B-17, which was the, at that time the biggest uh, bombers we had. And uh, so it was, it was exciting to say the least. And I was thrilled. I don't remember the particulars, but uh, ultimately I got into that B-29 program and got further training in that airplane. And it was, uh, it was, it was very exciting at that time. How long did it, roughly, how long was it like when you started training with that? Did you have to learn a whole lot of new things? Or yeah, you just... had to learn a whole lot of new things and so on. I don't know exactly how long it took. Uh, I would guess maybe uh, uh, a year, but I, I don't know that exactly. It, the... it was quite complex because uh, in navigation at that time and flying the ocean, uh, we used uh, celestial navigation, which is navigating by the by the stars, and uh, that was a new, a new, a new taste. Really, you might say, it, it was pretty exciting. Yeah. I don't want to ask you, but uh, navigating by the stars, how do you do that in the daytime? Uh, is that, is that well, a stupid question? You, that's a very good question, by <laughs> the way. Uh, and of course, there are no stars to get, navigate from during the day. But that was the, the principles. Uh, we were flying over water. Uh, most of the most missions, well, all of the missions actually, from uh, Saipan, which was where we were based. We were flying over the ocean, and uh, during the day we used uh, other navigation, but there were no landmarks. I mean, it was it was a pretty touch and go kind of deal. Yeah, I would say so. Did you actually fly the B-29 that they, you were going to use as your plane for the missions you went on? I didn't, I didn't physically fly because that was not my job. Uh, um, I, I did navigating and uh, also radar. Uh, we had the first radar and we used that uh, during the day and so on. So we, we had the most sophisticated equipment at that time. What I meant to say is, did they send you to Saipan on a B-29, or did you yes, go? they did. They did. We did went, uh, I think, from San Francisco or thereabouts and flew to uh, Hawaii with, of course, a full crew. And uh, then from Hawaii, there was one other island that we stopped at, and then Saipan, and then, or then Guam. And after that, uh, uh, Saipan. And for those that don't know, Saipan is the small island just north of Guam. And uh, today, it's actually where all the honeymooners from Japan go. It's full of luxury hotels. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's for luxury hotels on the beach. And, and that's the big place. It's kind of like the, the Hawaii of Japan. Yeah. You know, if they don't go to, to Hawaii, they go to Saipan to enjoy their honeymoon. Well, we flew off of, of that, and uh, it was uh, a long ride. Uh, before we captured uh, Iwo Jima, uh, we, it was about a 16-hour flight, and uh, that, that was a, a long haul. Uh, and, of course, we were carrying bombs at that time. 
because that was the purpose of our mission is to bomb targets in Japan. So 16 hours from Saipan to? To, 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 to Japan, Japan and back. Well, you, know, you had to have a lot of fuel carrying. On we, that had, we had to carry a lot of fuel and uh, so on. It was a big airplane and it was designed for that kind of flying. Uh, up to that time, we didn't, we didn't have an airplane that could do that. What altitude would you get to? Normally around 35,000. So the smaller planes that Japan might send after you, they wouldn't be able to reach that, would they? Uh, in Japan, yeah, well, they might have had some some fighters that could uh, get up there, but uh, it was a it was a pretty high. But generally speaking, we dropped down uh, to a somewhat lower altitude to to, to, to drop our bombs, and uh, then we turn around and go back to Saipan or wherever. So, How many bombs would be on a plane? Ah, gosh, I don't, I don't remember that. It was a big load, I can tell you. I mean, you. like fifty or a hundred, or well, uh, I don't want to speculate it because I don't remember exactly. Okay, but it was, it was a big load. It was, and it was a bigger load than any other airplane at that time could haul. Definitely enough to make once you. There uh, was the bomb that didn't deploy. I beg pardon. Was there one once that didn't go out that when the thing opened? Well, yes, uh, occasionally you had that, a bomb that hung up, and we've had, had that experience. A bomb that hung up in the, in the uh, uh, bomb bay, uh, and uh, you couldn't land with the bomb in that hanging in that position because it would explode. And uh, the only way that you couldn't, and you couldn't fly very well because you can't close the bomb bay when that, if you've got a bomb hanging precariously. So uh, we had uh, one of the boys went back, had to take off his parachute and everything and to loosen that bomb and it dropped and then we managed back safely. Did you say but, take his parachute off before handling that situation? Well, it, it, yes. Uh, if you were going to crawl in a bomb bay, an open bomb bay, you, you couldn't have stuff hanging off of you is pretty tight. So it, it was uh, it was an experience. <laughs> I don't recommend it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, yikes a rooney. That yeah, well this part of the part of the, the whole point of having Mr. Oric on here today is for people to understand what these men, these veterans had to go through to do their missions and to do what they had to do to protect us. As Americans, I mean, did you ever go in that bay or whatever you call it? Bombay? Oh, yeah. But that was uh, in that particular endeavor, there was one of the smaller guys in the plane. Uh, Got to do that. We, 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 he was elected. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, the stuff happens. And of course, you've got no way to go down and uh, land and have it repaired and then carry on. I mean, you, you've got to be sure that you complete your mission and get back to your where you came from. Well, you'd run out of fuel if you didn't, right? Yeah, you, you would if you just fooled around. You, you, uh, there was nothing to spare and so on. And, of course, later on when we captured Iwo Jima, uh, that shortened our mission somewhat in that we could land there on the way back, which was a shorter distance from there 
to Saipan. So that saved us a little time. We could increase our load. Um, I see. You'd have more fuel and be able to. We could, you wouldn't yeah. need as much fuel, so you'd be able we to. We didn't need as much fuel, so we carried more bombs. Okay. Yeah. And what what was the atmosphere like in the plane when you're flying to your mission? Well, uh, everybody's got a job to do, and uh, and you know that uh, you're not going to be welcomed when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're nervous, but uh, somehow or other, uh, I think everybody felt uh, uh, we're going to make it. The other guy may not, but we will. So, of course, that was ridiculous. But anyway, <laughs> whatever works, just calm your nerves. It's a nervous, yeah. it's, it's a nervous thing. But anybody who says they weren't, they weren't uptight is probably uh, not telling the truth. Yeah, I can assure you. And, and you know, like, like a basketball team, like right now, everybody back in Boston is thinking about the Celtics, and it's all about teamwork. And with, with, this, with the eight guys on the plane, or seven or eight that you uh, had yeah. to... Yeah, uh, I think actually 11. 11, so you all had to work in harmony. I mean, there was yeah. no, I don't like this guy, I don't like that guy, oh, you know. No, that. You, better, you better really like the pilots. Yeah, so uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting. I, and I guess interesting is not the word, but it was a, it was a serious, serious business. Oh. And... Uh, not making it was a possibility always, or being shot down by a, a, a fighter. So, so uh, there was an there was one of the gentlemen on the plane with you. And it was basically the same crew all the time, right? Yeah, it was the same crew. And then, oh yes, it had one uh, crew member. Uh, received we, a we phone call by the name of Arnold Spitz, and. Uh, Long after the war, I, I got a, a call from a fellow named Spitz on the telephone. I was at working at that time. It was long after the war. And I said, Spitz, I said, we we had a fellow on the plane that, by that name. Did he any relationship? He said, yes, that was my father. Now, Spitz is the champion swimmer. Right. And he's yeah. still around, I may add. Oh, yeah. He won seven or eight gold medals. Yeah. But that was his, his dad. And his dad, what, what did his dad do on the plane? He was, I think he was a, uh, a gunner. A gunner. So, so the thing is, like, did you ever have a flight that you almost didn't make it back? or was every Well, that was always a, a chance, you know. I... Uh, we, we may have had some, I don't remember any particular thing, but we always made it back. That's the key thing. We may have had some problems, which would not be uncommon in an airplane that size, that new, and uh, so on. Uh, so the point is that if you didn't make it back, there'd be no Mark Spitz who would have won seven or eight gold medals, and there would have been no Auric vacuum cleaner in your closet right now. No, I guess not. <laughs> So I forego those gold medals just to have my, uh, to be back. <laughs> That's right. You know. I'm sure everybody else felt that way. Oh, definitely. Then, how long were you in the Pacific? Oh, uh, I, I would guess a, a year or so. I'd pop in. So oh. you didn't stay until the end of the war or was that? Uh, 
Well, yes. Uh, that was. We, we did. Okay. Sometime around 1945 or late 44. I think it was, uh, I think it was 47, but I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. I was so, going to ask Tony um, if I can. Uh, obviously, over in the Pacific Theater, do you recall what the feeling was, what the vibe was amongst anybody that you could hear from around the Normandy D-Day events, of course, on the other side of the map, but I'm sure you guys heard all about it at some point. Yeah, we, oh yeah, we heard all about it. and It, uh, it was uh, a very nervous period. And uh, frankly, uh, the, the people that, uh, aren't, aren't concerned about what's going on right now uh, with Russia and all that. They have a right to be concerned because it doesn't take much of, uh, to trigger uh, something. And it, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's very worrisome. Uh, I don't know where this is going, but it, isn't, it doesn't look good to me to, to have this going on as it is particularly with the, uh, that uh, Russian uh, president is, uh, oh, well. Never what we were talking about is how they're just bombing certain cities to smithereens. So what's the point? There's nothing to take over because there'd be nothing there. There's no buildings and the factories are gone and the schools are gone. The hospitals are gone. They're blowing up everything and killing everyone. No exceptions that they can lay their hands on. It's, it's terrible. I, and it's the sort of thing that can lead to places we don't want to be. Yeah, much worse thing. So my next question was, how do you feel today about young Americans and their understanding of what it's like to serve our country? Well, uh, I, I think the people there who are fighting for their life are very brave and they're, they're doing all they can. Whether they'll survive, I don't know. There'll be thousands of Russians killed and thousands of the Ukrainian too. So uh, it's, uh, it's a very worrisome period to me. A lot of people just don't get the idea. I, I, maybe it's just as well, but I'm a worrier when it comes to stuff like that. Well, you've had experience and you've been there. And, yeah, you know. I've, I've had the experience, but I, I hate to let, live life with all your experiences. You know. Anyway, that's just it's a tough thing, and I uh, I am concerned about it very much. So, and I feel most certainly for those people who are everything they have, and there was no provocation whatsoever for for him to you know, the Russian to take and invade that country. They didn't pose a threat. They weren't threatening. They weren't doing anything that was bad. They and, and say, and so it's it just doesn't make sense. No. And it's a, and to me, it's something we all uh, could be concerned about because it doesn't lead in a nice direction. Mm. Well, so going back to our veterans for today, um, what do you think we should be doing be doing to improve what we do for our veterans? Well, I I I, I can't say that I know everything that we do or we don't do, but most certainly uh, we're. I think we're doing a good job in general with veterans. I think we could do more. Someone who spends, who, who risks his life uh, for the rest of us, 
deserves every every bit of help that we can give them when they and when they come back and if they come back. So yeah. I, uh, I I am not in a position to say what we should or shouldn't do, but I, to my way of thinking, the men who will give their life for the rest of us have to be in every way rewarded. Well, that's what I feel too. And, Absolutely. and when I see people, they always say they can get on the plane first and we're going to stand up for them and everything. And then when the Veterans Administration doesn't get properly funded, yeah. or something, and they put somebody in charge that, that's some political hack that doesn't right. know what they're doing, I, I, it infuriates me. I think yeah. we, we need to do way more for our veterans and it should be, uh, it, well, it should be an honor and it should be, you know. Yeah, right. I think there's more that we can do and more that we should do. Uh, and uh, these men are entitled to all the help and all the rewards that we could give them. If they're willing to risk their life for us, what are we willing to do for them? And I think we all know the answer to that one. Well said. That's right. Yeah. Back in the, when this, when the war was over and they were having ticker tape parades and that sort of thing, did you ever take advantage of any of that? Or did you go on any of those soldier return parties? Or? Uh, you say, did I take yes. advantage? No, I don't think I did because the, the guys my age, uh, their party is to stay alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not much for that. Maybe others are, but I'm not. And, uh, and uh, well, how about the GI Bill or any of those things? Did you participate with any of that? It, uh, with what again? The GI Bill and like they built Levitt Town and they oh, did all these things. You know? Well, I, as a contributor, I, I think I've done my share. You were eligible for all these different programs. Yeah. Well. I, I, I think this in the final analysis, we are so fortunate to be in this wonderful country. I never can, and I appreciate it more now than I did, and I always did, but I, I, now I just, I realize how lucky we are and that we live in this country, the opportunities afforded us. Uh, and I'm a, been successful at, in my work uh, here, and I, I would say it's, it's unlikely that that would happen in any, any other country. Wow. If, if, if I could real quick, Tony, if you don't mind. Uh, Mr. Ork, we have, uh, the, the VA has services, and there's all kinds of other programs that we talk about here on the station constantly. But the number one thing we hear in response is, and especially from a lot of the old timers, I don't want to take any of those services away from someone else. I, I, I don't want to take anything and potentially leave somebody else with something. Now, that's something we hear over and over again. What would you say to your fellow veterans who are still on that stance of, I don't want to take from someone else, when we know full well now that there are literally just piles of services just by their serving, they paid in full for them. Would you say to them to help get them to realize that? Well, I don't pretend to be an expert on that, but uh, I am uh, 100% uh, in favor of doing everything we can for better. If someone who's willing to risk their life uh, for us deserves everything that we can do for them. 
and we need that. And when a push comes to shove, somebody's got to pick up that rifle or whatever and uh, and take care of the opposition. And that's a very dangerous business. And I hope that people realize how much these men give of themselves and the risks they take. Uh, I, for one, am, as a veteran, I'm proud that I am a veteran. And I'm grateful for all the things that this country gives and provides for all of us. Well said. And I hope that folks realize that. When you came back from the war, you would break to work at RCA, did you not? Uh, well, no, I came back and uh, the government had a, at that time a, a program of uh, training of a free college education. Uh, I forget what the program was called, but anyway, you got to, you want to go to college, the government would pay. And almost every smart guy that I know of took advantage of it, except that I know one that didn't, and that was me. <laughs> I, uh, I felt as though I had to make a living some kind of way, didn't have anything. And so I, uh, I went to work and, and, uh, and as luck would have it, I, m I met with, uh, presidents of the of, of big companies and so on in New York. And I have actually had the pleasure or the privilege of meeting with Ronald Reagan, then president of the United States in the White House in his Oval Office. And uh, what a great honor and thrill that was. So uh, I've personally, I've been very fortunate and I'm grateful for that. So I, I know the story a little bit, though. You were working for RCA as later on, and out of the RCA um, came the Oric vacuum. Yeah, to, to well, I worked for uh, RCA. I ran the RCA wholesale distributorship in New York City uh, for several years. And uh, I guess when I was, uh, I don't know, 40s, I decided I wanted to do something for myself, and I... I resigned, I did a very good job and so on, and uh, got into the vacuum cleaner business and uh, had a, a really big success with that. It was a, a darn good product. We made them first in Germany and Ireland and then had a big factory in Southern Mississippi. And uh, we uh, had a, well, there's still a, millions of auric vacuum cleaners around the country and people rave about it. A woman said to me recently, as she recognized me on the street, because I used to do the commercials, and she said, uh, are you David Auric? I said, yeah. She said, uh, well, I have an auric vacuum cleaner. I said, how long have you had it? Well, she said, for 40 years. I said, 40 years? Why don't you get a new one? She said, why? This one works fine. Yeah. So it's uh, when you have that kind of uh, reception on a product, it's 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 gratifying, say the least. Pretty good problem to have, so, right? Yeah. That. So I, I would say that David's work with the Oric vacuums has improved hundreds of other people's lives, and that's made a big difference in my own life uh, with what I learned from David over forty years. Um, is stay the course. That's the number one thing, is stay the course. And when you stay the course, you beat Miami. 
you know, that's what we found out last night. So uh, Al Horford was one of those guys that stayed the course. You know, David Orr stayed the course. And I owe, you know, a lot of what I, I have in my own life and things that I've learned and able to build my business and able to take over the radio station. If it wasn't for David Orrick, I couldn't have done that. And so I'm very grateful for David and everything that he's done and very grateful for all the things that he's done indirectly through my family, from my family and elsewhere. Um, it's very, very gratifying for him to see all the success stories and all the people who have gone off and done other things, but started with him in sales or in business. Yeah. Now, and David sold the company a while back, actually 2003 is my memory. And then, um, you know, he didn't stop though. David didn't like the idea of retirement. So tell us about how you got in the candle business. Well, I, I just kind of settled in. I believe that people should work and I, and if you can avoid retirement, uh, and sitting around, you'll l likely live longer. And so I think that you should work. And now if it's if you're not well and so on, that's another story. But if you can, I believe in working. And uh, so I, uh, all I can say is that in my experience, such as it is, I came from a small town in Northern Minnesota and then spend much of my business life in New York City and elsewhere. Um, this is a country you can do things and you can get rewarded. And there's a lot of places elsewhere where no matter what you do, you stand still. I, uh, but that's not true in America. And people should recognize that and, and do their best. And I say, don't retire. <laughs> you know, I, I remember on a cruise to Alaska once, Somebody introduced their father and they said he was retired and David asked him how old he was. And the guy said he was 63 and he was like dumbfounded, 63, you're retired. You know, I thought retiring was when you're in the box Yeah. and you don't look like you're ready for any box, you know? So yeah. I was, I knew then, but again, going back to the candles, uh, I know my wife's a big fan of your candles. We get a case about every three or four months. Yeah. You know, those nice, well, over, so tell us about the candles. Well, I bought a, a, a candle business for sale and uh, and I, I bought it over in uh, North Carolina <clears throat> and we manufacture candles, 100% made in the USA uh, and uh, no uh, materials that are not uh, healthy and so on. And that, that cannot be said in a lot of the Chinese stuff. Uh, but anyway, uh, I got the candle business. It's a new thing. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's a different kind of a business and so on. And I've got a, quite a number of people who are very skillful. And, uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm, I don't have much time left, I don't think. But uh, they do. And, and if this could provide a good business job for them that's my hope so we're making wonderful candles and if anybody's interested in the candle then you can't do better than an auric candle is it auriccandle.com or what's the website uh, yeah it's, yeah you can look it up it's on the website you can buy it on that and it's a good value 
I mean, they uh, they last longer, burn cleaner, and are more fragrant. So I was going to say, I took the tour of the candle factory about five years ago. And one thing I was impressed with is there's two independent labs within the building. And you don't want to just burn anything because you don't know those fumes, people are going to be burning them. So one lab checks the other lab and the other lab checks that lab to make sure that they're both doing their job so that everything that goes out of that factory is perfectly safe, long lasting. And, you know, and you can have them so that they, they, there's no smokes, they're smokeless candles. Yeah. You can, you know, there's a variety of different flavors. There's even one that smells like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. So I remember yeah, that. No it's way. It's a good product and a lot of satisfaction. How did you capture the scent of a donkey's? That doesn't even make sense. I love it. Yeah. It, yeah. Well, I, 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 I got one of them, so I tried it and it's right. It smells like going into a Dunkin' Donuts place, but I don't know who wants that. I'd rather have a place that smells like some certain type of flowers that I like the best, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, so, um, so what I wanted to do today was have a nice, um, visit with Mr. Oric and talk about what it's really like to be in World War II and really, really be an active veteran who's at um, military service and seen battle and survived to talk about it and, and I give, try to get the feel for it. As some of you know, about four weeks ago, I went to Normandy and I saw the, the beaches that our American soldiers landed on and the British soldiers and the Canadian soldiers and some of the French soldiers that were over in England building up a force to come back to France. And it was overwhelming. I had no idea that it was so large. I had no idea how dangerous it was. I had no idea how many men lost their lives that day and how many men didn't and what they had to go through. Just landing was one thing. Once they landed, they had to go to one city after the next city after the next city. And you, you know, you take a two hour train ride just to get to Paris at 100 miles, 150 miles an hour. These guys walked it. They walked it and had to fight their way there and never knew where the fight was going to be. Then once they got Paris and they took Paris back, that was not, that was, that was like one tenth of the way. Now you got to go to Brussels and you got to go to Holland. And you eventually work your way to Munich and Berlin. And that was a long walk. I can tell you, I took in the train ride at 150 miles an hour, and it takes four and a half hours. So think about walking it. And part of that was in the wintertime. So it was not an easy job. And the sacrifice that the men made, did, they, what they did, and the nurses, the females that were involved too, and, and everybody on every level, what it took. And think about the massive amount of food fuel our organization president eisenhower who was the commanding general at the time he did so much for for the world that during those three or four months organizing the his his main officers in charge you know like general Patton and so forth what they all had to do in montgomery and he had to take out the whole thing and put it all in and they had to time it just right so that they landed on the beach on a certain day and, and it turned out that it was smoky, foggy, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, you know, but they still did it and they still were successful. And because of that, we're not speaking German today. So 
I, I think we need to really salute our veterans anytime we see them and praise them and tell them how much we appreciate everything they've done and then go one step further and make sure our politicians are taking some of that defense money and putting it into the Veterans Administration hospitals and programs because we have too many of them that we're losing that are coming back addicted. And that's the big thing that I'm, I'm very well aware of. We don't want these people to be, you know, living on the street because they got an addiction problem and they can't hold a job. They need to be in an addiction center. They need to be treated properly. These people are, are veterans and they're, and they got this way because they were out there protecting us. And that's the thing I can't emphasize more that we need to get out and we need to make sure that we salute our veterans, not only today on Memorial Day, but each and every day. And if you're ever out in a cemetery and you see one of the veterans flags blown out of its holter, you know, holster or anything there on the ground, pick it up and put it back where it belongs because that's what you need to do because that person did a lot, a lot more for us than we'll ever do for them. That's right. Well said, so, Tony. This Uncle, yeah, this is Uncle Tony. And I'll tell you that this is a courage to hope. And I hope you appreciate David Orrick today. He's 99. I'm coming back on his 100th birthday so we can do memorial, we can do this again on another interview because this guy is going to be here. I can assure you of that. Nice. He's, he's hanging in there and he's smart as they come. Never misses a beat. Well, that's nice, Tony. I appreciate your kind words. And uh, I wish all of our listeners uh, have a great day and appreciate those who have given so much. Thank you, Mr. Oric. I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you on as a, uh, as a guest. This has been a great, great honor for us. And we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Uncle Tony, on behalf of all of us here at WMEX, Mr. Oreck, thank you very much for your service, sir, and everything you've done for everybody that you have and everybody that you will. We appreciate you both more than you will ever know. And to all of our veterans out there, just the same, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Tony LaGreca, Mr. David Oreck, and all of us here at WMEX, Thank you for tuning into the Courage to Hope. Yeah, that's right, folks. And we're going to cut that there because we're not done quite yet. No, live back here in studio, your friend, Ben Rabinovitz, now being joined by another one of our good friends from the veteran community. Mr. Greg Brasso joins us live in here. And Greg, welcome back to Courage to Hope. You're a previous guest as well. And needless to say, a somber tone to this episode tonight, losing a World War II veteran and a true icon of the American landscape, David Oreck. Uh, today was his actual funeral. And what else is today in the realm of things, Greg? There's a very poignant monument sitting to this day. And of course, you know. Certainly is the, 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 the anniversary of Mount Siribachi and the raising of the uh, that infamous, that famous flag, uh, that scene with the Marines uh, all, all helping each other. That's right, raising the flag, and we all know the story behind that, but I just thought, what a fitting way to have that story conclude in the most positive of lights, because needless to say, David Oreck, legendary, those, that's the word that comes to mind. 
but he said a lot of things in that episode that really, really rang true. And we wanted to discuss that for a few moments on everybody's behalf and everybody that's tuning in across the country right now to listen to that interview with David Oreck. Thank you very much for doing so. Uh, honoring his memory. He said of the veterans of this country, they would be willing to risk their life for you. What would you risk for them? And that was just powerful. Sure is. Sure, sure is. And, uh, and, and, and looking back at, at what the Vietnam veterans uh, came back to, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, was, it was something that uh, I, I think we fell down a little bit. But in today's world now, I think the veterans uh, uh, are assuming their, their, their place uh, uh, to be exalted as uh, uh, really uh, those that step up uh, and are willing to sacrifice the short time on earth that we have, that they would place themselves in harm's way if necessary yeah. for the benefit of you and I just sitting here, Ben, talking about their wonderfulness. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that there are so many services that are available to the veteran. And we here at WMEX, and of course, on the Veterans Voice Network, it's an, a message that will never tire of screaming from the mountaintops because there's so many. David Ork just said it himself, you know. I never wanted to take away from somebody else who might have needed those services more than I. And it, it, it's just that sentiment right there. You know, that's why we continue to try our best to give back to every single person, man or woman, that signed that blank check to Uncle Sam. It's one of the most bravest things you can ever do. And, and the fact that you mentioned that, Ben, it, uh, is, is absolutely poignant today uh, with uh, 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 Mr. Oreck uh, uh, passing away, uh, uh, part of the uh, world's greatest generation that, uh, uh, you know, really stepped up and, and, and mobilized this country uh, to, uh, uh, to, the, to the place where we are today as as being honored and revered and respected and we uh we need to stand up for those that need help standing up on their own and i think that's uh, the role the united states has played yeah and, and even to those who don't necessarily need any help standing up still i mean first of all god bless them whoever they are however they are and like david oryx said stay away from retirement that stuff will get you every time. Sure will. And he never stopped working at all. You know, he kept his mind sharp, his fingers busy, and you know, whether it was doing all the great work he was doing for various charities or flying in his collection of planes that go back to 1930, uh, I mean, that's really the definition of living the, the life. And he always considered himself a servant and someone to give back. You know, reading through some of his biography and some of the things he's done in his lifetime, you know, it's it's one of those things. But he always wanted to give back. Yeah, that's that. That was the name of the game. And when it came time to get into that business through the RCA company and all the things he was a part of, I mean, you just think, oh, that's what I want to say. We're going through the biography. Uh, when all the hurricanes came through and his plants, his factories in in Mississippi and all the areas down south were rendered useless. He continued to pay their salaries and wages, despite the fact that they were now no longer operating for a few moments there. Amazing. And that's the kind of man he was. Amazing. And 
That's the I mean, kind of leader that being a World War II veteran especially, you know, he learned those qualities and were able to translate them back to people. You know, that that same that similar story was the gentleman uh, that, that from up in Lowell that uh, ran the Polar Fleece Company, if you remember, Ben. That's right. Uh, he was a veteran, and uh, when his factory plant burnt, uh, I think for a year, he paid all his employees while they were not working uh, just to keep them because he knew they were all families and depended on him. And, uh, you know, sounds like him and uh, Mr. Oreck were cut from the same uh, same piece of cloth. That's right. And, uh, you know, just diving back into his story a little bit more, he uh, had mentioned uh, during his service, uh, I mean, got to give him credit where it is. Pearl Harbor happens, and like most Americans in that time, he did what he felt he needed to do, go and protect Lady Liberty. And boy, howdy did he. You know, he joined right up after that uh, to the United States Army Air Corps, serving as a certified pilot, navigator, and bombardier in the Pacific Theater. As he said, over the course of two years, he was part of multiple bombing missions over Japan. And uh, he flew those brand new, at the time at least, state-of-the-art B-29 bombers. Ben, there were no old B-29 bombers. <laughs> they were just invented. We only flew. I mean, it was only 20 years before that that the Wright brothers flew, you know, and invented airplanes. And, and look at the courage it took, because a lot of these planes, they were held together with bailing wire, and the skin of the plane was not much more than a, th a thin piece of canvas. The bullets just... Right through, yep. <laughs> right through. Well, right, right, right through. So uh, it, it was quite a, uh, a, a feat of bravery just to get up and crawl into those cold, drafty planes not knowing... What's going to happen next? Just not knowing. Just not knowing. Lucky that uh, he was able to, to survive that episode, and uh, he certainly was in a mission to pay it back uh, tenfold over just by uh, being the kind of person and American that he thought he should be. Absolutely. That's another reason why I consider us here at WMEX so lucky, because he and Tony, Tony LaGreca, of course, here of WMEX, uh, friends and mentor for years to Tony. And, you know, Tony has taken those lessons and now he's sharing them with the rest of us. So I feel like we're all connected in that way and we're all still benefiting from the knowledge and the wisdom that David Oreck bestowed upon us, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, I know we all experienced those commercials of his and all the marketing over the years at different times in different ways, but there will never be another David Oreck with that bowling ball and the vacuum. and Legendary. It's, it's just no one else is ever going to be able to pull that off ever again. And to those of us that got to watch it live, yep. what an honor. Uh, you know, he really uh, uh, helped set the stage. You, you know, uh, being out there, but being truthful and honest about his product. Uh, you know, no flim flams, no uh, whatever kind of stories. Uh he built a better machine, and he did a better job of bringing that uh, that message out to his uh, his public and his audience. That were amused by uh, everything that he was. That's right. From his honesty to the jokes to the bowling balls and the and and the uh, in the vacuum cleaner. Come yeah. on, nobody did that. And the air purifiers and the candle company later on in life. I mean, just a never-ending list of entrepreneurial gold, as I like to call it. Did not so, stop. Never, ever, never stop. 
by the way, a little tidbit here on the local side, folks. If anybody's ever curious to see that actual original vacuum and bowling ball that David Oreck used in those commercials, it lives at Vacuum City. In Plymouth, Massachusetts. Does it really? It really does. Is it, there a vacuum hall of fame somewhere? We're gonna make one because he deserves it. And it's gonna the very first award is gonna be the David Oric Award. It's gonna be beautiful. We're gonna get on that. Thank you for bringing that up, Greg. <laughs> but uh, again, just to recap here tonight, folks, a very special edition of Courage to Hope, honoring the memory and the legendary legacy of David Oric and all of the things that he did for this country. So. Greg, if you'll join me, there's only one way I could ever think to end such a tribute to such a man, a veteran of these United States in the Second World War. I'd like to go ahead and play taps officially for David Oreck and his family at this time. And immediately following that, folks, a special song from Dion. And after that, stay tuned, folks, because Veteran's Voice is going to continue this conversation. In the meantime, please, if you can... Rise and remove your caps and stand in silence as we remember David Arick. Can you? 
they die young I just look around and it's gone Didn't you love the things that they stood for Didn't they try to find some WMEX Quincy Boston, streaming at WMEXBoston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston.